Welcome back everyone! This is Through Lisa's Eyes, One World, Numerous Lives. I'm excited to have you back here and in my last episode I talked to my friend Anna and we talked about how your mind is your most precious tool and I'm really excited to welcome you back to the second episode. If you haven't hit the button yet, hit subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes, so you get a notification. And also make sure to check out my um, website throughlisaseyes.com slash podcast, because this is where you'll find so many more show notes to the show, which is really interesting to get some more background about the people I'm talking to and about my dear friends I'm interviewing. And welcome back now to the second episode. I have an amazing guest today. He's such an deep friend um, I met, how many years is it? Three years now, right? Yeah, it's been about three years now. Yeah. It's my dear friend Prabhu from Malaysia, and we met um, during a um, dive trip, a scuba diving trip. I was basically just hanging out on this island for 10 days on the beach in this little (laughs) hut, and there he was randomly. And we um, basically, right from the first day we met, we engaged into very deep talks, and since then have been very, very deep friends, which I value so much and I'm so excited to introduce him to you and to have him tell you about his life because he has so many amazing steps he can tell you about and there's so many things I can still learn from him and I'm really glad he's here today with me. So hi Prabhu, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thank you so much for being on the show with me. Hey Lisa, first of all let me say thank you very much for asking me to be a part of your podcast. Um, I like the idea that you're getting everyone who means a lot to you to share ideas and parts of their life of how, you know, things have been difficult and how they've overcome stuff and basically life lessons, like you mentioned. And uh, it's nice that, you know, everybody gets to share some life lessons, something to take back after listening to a podcast. So um, thank you for wanting me to be a part of that. Of course. So mm, let me see where we were um, three years ago when we met on Tioan Island. That was during a phase of time when I was actually on a sabbatical break from my usual job. Yeah. Um, I work in the oil and gas. Uh, I do some design and construction of oil platforms. But I took some time off to actually go and explore the world and discover myself. So that's when we met. And I met you at a, at a very interesting point of my life. But a bit of a backstory of how I actually got there. So I was born in Malaysia, and uh, my parents were born in Malaysia as well. But my grandparents, they were immigrants, the south part of India. So ethnically, I'm Indian, although I'm Malaysian. Mm-hmm. And um, so they came from south of India, and they had a very tough life. So my mom's dad, he basically, he was working for the British Army, actually. That's how he mm-hmm. ended up in Malaysia. And um, he basically, after he, he finished with the army, um we're selling like these sort of um, Indian food stuff. It's called string hoppers. So he went from house to house selling it on a bicycle. He made some money. Oh, he wow. opened up a little stall by the roadside and uh, he started selling that again. And then eventually he, he saved him money to, to rent a space in a restaurant. And he actually opened up an Indian banana leaf restaurant. Oh. The South Indians, we like to eat food on a banana leaf. So. And these are stories I didn't even know yet. So that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's been so much that we have not actually shared yet. Yeah. So I guess this is a good way. You can can hear a bit of my backstory as well. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather actually opened up a restaurant eventually. And even then, um, it was a restaurant and a little storeroom. And my mom had three other siblings. So it was like six of them. All of them were staying in this 
little room in the shop. And eventually my grandfather made some money and he expanded the restaurant a little bigger. And even till today in Malaysia, uh, the town where we live, it's called Petaling Jaya, which is one of the biggest towns in, in uh, Malaysia in the capital area of Kuala Lumpur. Just to get an overview, like right now you're calling me from Kuala Lumpur, <laughs> just to let everyone oh, know yes. from your Correct. office. Um, and then your town is just right next to Kuala Lumpur, or does it belong to Kuala Lumpur? Uh, no, it's actually a satellite town which was created in the 1960s to support the um, city center of Kuala Lumpur as the economic capital, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So Petaling Jaya is one of the largest town centers which um, still facilitates uh, to the commercial and the commerce of main town in Kuala Lumpur. Mm -hmm. So most people try to live in the town that I am in now because it's the most like advanced developed area, it's comfortable and that everything. Okay, but anyway, really interesting. Yeah. Um, that aside, um, so actually my grandfather's restaurant is called Raju's Banana Leaf, <laughs> and it is one of the most famous restaurants around, and, and uh, he came from nothing. Oh, wow, um, that's amazing. So my mom... Yeah, it is. Uh, so my mom and her siblings, when they grew up, they had not much. And um, there was a lot of like racial riots and stuff at one point of time in 1963. So what happened was then my grandparents sent my mom and her siblings to a British convent in, in India. And they went and studied there and they did their college and then they came back. Um, so my mom had a tough life growing up. But then eventually when she was old in her 20s, my grandfather had made it successful and And he had a really comfortable life. Uh, on the other side, my dad came from also a very poor family. And his his father, my other side of the grandparents, they were living in a highland. It was pretty much tea plantations there. Mm. So my grandparents were farmers pretty much over there, uh, working the tea plantation and stuff. So my dad grew up in a very tough life as well. He had to graze goats as a kid and chop firewood. and He studied really hard and uh, he eventually became a professor in, in the National University in Malaysia. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. Uh, it was actually a very big thing. I think that's something you should all always very much value if people um, are able to um, take on those big steps in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like growing up, my grandparents on both sides came from absolutely nothing mm. when they immigrated to Malaysia. They made it for themselves. Uh, growing up as a child, I always looked up to my grandparents and my parents, mm. knowing that, you know, in life, if you really persevere, you can really achieve things that yeah. you probably never imagined that you could. So I grew up in that sort of environment where, you know, I was led to believe that if you put effort, if you really work hard for what you want, just don't cheat people, don't do any bad towards others, just put all your effort and, and heart and soul into the things that you want to work, you, you make it work. Those are very pure um, lessons you were growing up with. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and those are the kind of things that uh, I would always try and pass on to people. Yeah. And growing up with that mindset, you know, I pushed myself as well to achieve things yeah. um, but having said that I've had cultural so like society and social influence growing up as well and growing up in an ethnic Asian sort of family the expectations is always like you know you study you get a job you get a wife you get a family I, you know, a lot of my friends are Europeans as well. And, you know, it's no different sometimes to some of the ways how European families raise their, their children as well. You know, mm. you, you study, get a degree, get a job, get a family, get kids. And, you know, yeah. then that is what they see as a perfect life. And growing up, of course, I saw my parents. Uh, they had a beautiful life. They were actually married through an arranged marriage. Arranged marriage so yeah. basically, 
both sides of my grandparents like sort of knew each other from the community. We we all fall in a certain class of community. So they saw like, oh, this guy's got a daughter. So we'll go and ask um, in 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 the hand of marriage for the hand of marriage mm. uh, for my son kind of thing. And and my parents basically didn't know each other. They got married through an arranged marriage, and it worked out wonderfully for them. Mm. That was you know, and and in the part of me and envies that because they had a beautiful life, not even knowing each other. They fell in love after, which is not the case of many things these days. Many relationships, uh, mine included, which I'll get to in a while as well. Mm. That's what I heard um, about arranged marriages. I've, I've read a lot of um, articles and a lot of experts talking about it. They often said, like, it's most often about, yeah, in the end, you're friends. And um, it's always about that part that you're friends first, and then hopefully you'll fall in love. <laughs> But um, True. It's, it's different compared to European and Western um, relationships. Because I yeah. think um, yeah. those kind of relationships can be very tricky, Western relationships as well. Because uh, most often people aren't even friends, maybe. And um, so that can be really hard throughout the time. And then sometimes you got to even ask yourself, why are you even together with someone? True. But I think it's also uh, a part of the Asian culture that people also don't really talk about or reflect like mm -hmm. the problems that they face. Okay. Ha having said that, I, I had a chance growing up, my dad did a lot of research for the university and stuff. So he was in the US for some time. He was in England, traveling around a lot. So I grew up having to get the chance to travel with him as well. And I oh, wow. studied in Australia. I did my degree there. I came back. My family and my my mom's siblings, like her husband is uh, one of the Malay uh, He was the Malaysian ambassador for different countries. So he traveled a lot. So we visited That's him impressive. a lot. Yeah, it is. And my mom's brother, he lived in the US. Uh, he studied there. He grew up there. So a lot of my family was, I would say, although I'm Asian, part of my family was Western European influenced and part Asian. So it, it growing up like that, it was a big advantage for me. I could see the perspective of both worlds you know, yeah. growing up in an Asian environment with an Asian family, but also spending half my life in, in the Western world in mm. Europe and stuff. It must have been so educating, especially throughout an age where you were really receptive towards these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It was it was amazing because I got the chance to see a lot of things and, and yeah. you know think for myself. But as much as I say that, you know, when you grew up in an Asian family where they keep saying that, you know, you should just try and get a job, get married, blah, blah, blah. That mm. stuff is gets stuck in your head. And growing up, you don't realize it. Until you're much older, you have the capacity to think, step back and think like, Oh my, is this something that I really want for myself or is this something that I am just trying to satisfy the community and yeah. family with? You know? I mean, how would you? That's how they, that's yeah. how you were brought up. How would you know? Exactly. Or how would you even start to self-reflect because it's so normal? Yeah. And as much as uh, I had so much exposure, I never got to get out of it until a certain point of time in my life. And I've got two siblings. Uh, my brother lives in the UK. He's an engineer himself as well. My younger sister is a dentist. And I met your cousin, right? It was your co the cousin I met in Hamburg, right? Correct. Yeah. Because <laughs> probably yeah, visited yeah. Uh, so... me in Hamburg and another friend. And so we got to see each other in Hamburg. <laughs> Correct. There, there, that was a good time so like yeah you met one of my cousins in um, Hamburg as well so most of my family live in Australia um, in the US and uh, England in Scotland and of course one the one person that you met who's in Germany mm -hmm. so most of my family aren't living in Malaysia anymore there's always stops for you to visit that's kind of interesting oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's really nice so I, I we all try to 
I've got 11 cousins in total. So oh, wow. we're really close, yeah. And I'll every other year we try and meet up. <laughs> <laughs> I've got 11, yeah, I've got 11. So it's it's a nice big um, happy family. And we're yeah. all really close, so that's good. It's a real global family then. <laughs> I mean, it I'm is, always it talk is. My, I always, I'm always talking about my emotional global family, all of you guys. <laughs> but this is your real global family. <laughs> yeah, there's literally people all over the world. When I was the, the age of 16, unfortunately my dad, actually passed away he went for a surgery and the surgery they made some complications so um there was an error a medical error that the, the surgeon made a mistake and yeah sadly unfortunately he he passed away which was a really difficult thing for me because i was extremely close to my father and my father was like you know um, a very handy man he taught me how to to fix the toilet pipes the, the light bulbs and everything like you know from gardening and he had amazing general knowledge like if you told him what's if you asked him actually a capital of uh, this country or that country he would tell you it was very very well read well, i guess being a professor in the university he had to be quite knowledgeable i guess yeah. so growing up um, at a critical point of time in my life, it came at a very difficult moment because that is when I just had finished high school mm. and I wanted to join university. And I've always wanted to do something of, of the nature of being next to animals and stuff. So I wanted to be a vet. Okay. But funny thing, the thing is, my dad grew up in a very difficult life mm. and for him he said like no don't be a veterinarian become an engineer so that's a typical asian mentality you got to be an engineer lawyer a doctor of some sort okay. although vet is a doctor but at that point he said no there's no future in malaysia for it if you go back and do things in malaysia it's, it's not good okay so planning planning practical in a way planning what makes sense where's potential yeah, yeah. okay well you see that's the thing um my parents and the generations before them, they never saw potential in things, like to look beyond. And which is what I'm able to pass on to my children now. Although although you, you have a, a passion, mm. there is ways of making that passion a career that you will enjoy. Mm. And also, importantly, in today's world, you need to monetize. You need to be able to make your, your, your passion a career, which you also make money out of. Yeah. But the, the most important thing is that if you have a career and if you don't get money out of it, will you still be happy? That's the first question you need to ask yourself. Yeah. Right? Then you slowly work your way towards a profitable uh, means of, of turning your, your passion of, of, of career mm. into something that can support your lifestyle. Because, yeah. you know, let's be honest, at the end of the day, you need money to survive. <laughs> you can't survive on love and... <laughs> And excitement forever. Some more than others. <laughs> Some more than others, correct. <laughs> it's also important to understand that in this kind of world we live, there's so many opportunities for you. And I think a lot of people, um, they sometimes I feel like they don't dare to dream. And I feel like um, there's so many ways you can actually monetize your passion and you can actually monetize your, I always call it those crazy little thoughts within you. And um, yeah, absolutely. I would like, it would be so amazing if um, even more people could um, believe in themselves and believe in their own ideas because I often feel like also in Germany here um, we often follow this mentality and families all often follow this mentality that yeah there's got to be some potential there I think especially right now with um, our parents generation um, they grew up in a different way and we have all the digital um, development now and we are growing up in a different way so I think True. there's a bit of a clash there and I think a lot of young people um, sometimes don't dare to dream and don't dare to follow their true passion or don't dare to follow 
those little thoughts um, because there's so many people telling them otherwise or whatever reason there may be. And so yeah. I feel it's very important to think about that and to reflect on that. Also, like talking to yourself, being like, okay, so am I actually doing what I'm doing right now? Is that something that really satisfies me? Or is there something I could True. change so I can even follow my passion more and be even more balanced or whatever this may feel for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, actually, relating to that topic, I've got something um, to share as well, yeah. which I'll get to. But it's it's true. Like people sometimes don't dare to dream enough. But there's also a fact where people need to have a dream that is also sensible um, and a dream that can be changed into something that you can monetize. Mm -hmm. So basically, when my dad passed away, I decided for myself, like, okay, fine, like, you know, what, what, what am I going to do next? And I, I was interested in engineering as well. So I just did mechanical engineering and I, I did that. And I, I graduated from Monash University in Australia. And I was also interested in the marine industry. Was, how did it work out for you in Australia? Um, was it easy to get a visa for college purposes? Yeah, it's not a problem because I wasn't a student visa. That's okay. easy because... Um, it was really expensive, wasn't it? Sorry yes, to ask uh, that bluntly, but... <laughs> no, no, no. I just it, heard it, that it was not cheap. Um, and I went to Monash, uh, which is also one of the top universities in Australia. So it wasn't cheap either. Okay. Um, as an international student, I pay, I can't remember how much I paid because I graduated in 2007. Mm. So I, I remember I paid a lot of money. And coming from Malaysia, um, where the exchange rate when I went was only 2.3, but now the exchange rate is like 3.3 or something like mm. that. Yeah. So I had to pay a lot of money. And it was quite the culture shock, wasn't it? <laughs> um, for me, it wasn't because I had a lot of interaction living in the Western society okay. even before I went to college. Oh, okay. So for me, yeah. yeah, for me, it was nothing new. And um, having my father pass away at that age, uh, at a young age, I sort of built some resilience to myself. I was able to, you know, overcome a lot of um, emotional heartache after that. I grew a little bit more tough, um, if you call it, you know, emotionally. And um, yeah, so it wasn't wasn't difficult for me. And I'm a character of which you know I easily get along with people. Oh, yeah. So I've always been that. <laughs> I've always been that sort of person. So it was, it was never an issue for me to integrate. And I think the most important thing when you go to a new place, be it the community, integration is the most important thing that people actually mm -hmm. fail to to work on. Um, because once you integrate into the society, the community, that's it. You know, you're part of them. Yeah. You're not looked upon as an outcast. And, um, you know, just straying a little off topic, I think that's a problem with a lot of uh, immigrants. You know, refugees, for that matter, as well, um, new immigrants who come into a country, uh, the lack of integration sets them apart. And that is always a problem. So, you know, in any in any given situation, like like from my life experience, that was the most important thing. For me, integration. I went to Australia. I had a lot of Australian friends. I did the things they did. We had barbecues. We had parties. We had, you know, the usual Australian laid-back sort of lifestyle where you just go barbecue every other weekend, you know, drink a couple of beers, that sort of thing. You know, people may not view a certain culture as the same thing that they have, but, you know, it's it's culture that somebody else has, and it's your like responsibility to integrate with somebody else's culture if you're in their country. Yeah. I read this really interesting book about that where um, basically the, the author said um, it's not about is your culture better, is the other culture better, it's just about 
being sensitive towards this thought that there Absolutely. are differences. So that's the Absolutely. magic behind it. And also becoming Absolutely. aware that your own culture has differences. And Yeah. No, I can't agree more, Lisa. Um, I grew up uh, being raised as a Hindu. Mm. Um, am I a godly person? No. I mean, I used to go to the temples. I used to follow, like, you know, festive stuff. But, you know, that was part of my growing up. Uh, the religion was part of my, is a way of my life. Um, it was important. But at the same time, I see other people's culture. I see other people's religion. Uh, my mom grew up in a British convent. She went to church every day. Mm. She reads the Bible, but yet she's a Hindu by, by birth and she still practice, mm. she still practices Hinduism. So, you know, my family has also been open in that sense. I myself find Hinduism very interesting. So, I've, yeah, it you is. know that I've been traveling a lot in Asia and whenever I'm there, I'm really strongly engaged into the whole religious point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, mm. there's, there's lots to learn in every religion and also cultural. Mm. Um, sort of effects that the religion has, like Hinduism, for example. The Indian people are very driven in in culture mm. based on the religion that they practice. So, yeah. anyways. Yeah, that's what I feel as well. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Like in, in Bali, for example, if you see that, you know, the, the culture of the people is quite intertwined with the religion that they hold. That's why it's very different from the rest of uh, Indonesia. You can definitely feel that. I think um, from all the places I've visited, um, especially in Asia, compa comparing to other countries, um, Bali mm. has been one of the most, like, just from a very warm-hearted place, welcoming place. Sure. I gotta sure. say. Sure. I mean, all the Asians I met were wonderful people. But in Bali, there was just this yeah. certain magical welcoming feeling that came, like, really yeah. deep from within the heart, I felt. Asian people in general are more welcoming because the whole family, community thing, um, that, that part yeah. of the Asian culture is very strong. Mm -hmm. So it's always, you know, you invite strangers to your home. You, I mm -hmm. can, you know, you can meet someone you've never known for your whole life and two seconds later, they're your family. You know, you're inviting them to your, yeah. to your brother's um, engagement party and you're <laughs> drinking with them, you know. Um, that's, that's the beautiful thing about being in Asia. Yeah, you, you get that in Europe and parts of Europe, but I think the way of life in Europe is a bit more reserved compared to the Asian community. Yeah. But, you know, that's, yeah, that's how too. the world is. Coming back to the point where I mentioned um, integration. Mm -hmm. So if you integrate, you don't have a problem. My family was good at that. And um, they also raised me in a way to integrate, not, not to discriminate people and whatnot. And it's also because in Malaysia, sadly, there is a lot of underlying discrimination against uh, different ethnic classes. Okay. So in Malaysia, you have the, the ethnic Malay people, you've got the ethnic Chinese and the ethnic uh, Indians mm -hmm. were brought in by the British um, as labor force. And the British ruled Malaysia by dividing all these ethnic uh, groups and not giving them the ability to integrate because then that would cause an overthrow of power. People realized, like, okay, they had mm. power by by numbers. So when the British left, the Malaysian government, they had put the Malay rulers in, in charge um, because they they were about, let's say, 70% 70, 70 of the population were Malays back then, 20% mm. Chinese and about 10% ethnic Indians. Okay. Of course, there were other races, uh, a lot of Europeans. Um, so since then, the, the, the political system of Malaysia was to ruled by racial discrimination. They always put the Malays in power, you know, put them above the rest. They get the special discounts um, in universities. So everybody in Malaysia just lives with that fact because you can't go, you can't oppose it. So growing up, um, discrimination was 
very large, but everybody just shrugs their shoulder and just moves on with life because there isn't much you can do. Yeah, right. So growing up in that sort of growing in that sort of environment, you you become tough. You just uh, accept things the way they are and you just move on because you can't uh, you can't do much to revolt or fight against mm-hmm. the system. It, it just wouldn't work. Um, so that's why. So growing up in 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 other parts, if if there was a racial discrimination, for me it's nothing. Like I. Thankfully, I've never been discriminated outside of Malaysia, like uh, in the open. No, no one, no one, as you can see how I look right now with a big beard and long hair. <laughs> this was a recent development. I never had a long beard, but I traveled a lot with this image of which a uh, funny thing, my own friends and family uh, make fun of saying that I looked like some sort of terrorist. No. But the funny thing is, uh, it doesn't bother me, to be honest, but when I go to different countries in Europe, uh, the immigration officers never bat an eye. They never stop me. They never hassle me because of the way I look. And even if they did, you know, it wouldn't bother me because growing up from a young age, being discriminated, it's not easy. But you know, it's just you just it toughens you up. It made me who I am today. Yeah, that's very impressive. Uh, the life lesson here, I would say, is that you know, if, if you persevere and you can see through things. It it makes your life a whole lot easier. It's not the easiest thing, but if you can actually try and persevere through all these outside judgments and stuff like that, and you know who you are truly inside, it helps you move forward. Because if I if I took every racial discrimination or racial slur against me personal, it would it would consume me. You won't progress. You will not go any further. And that in itself is something that will bring you down and not push you forward. That's exactly what I was thinking right now. <laughs> yeah. So so that's what I did. I, I never allowed, you never give space to allow these things to bring you down. You you tell yourself you're better than this and you keep pushing. And, you know, here I am today. Mm. So after the whole university thing, I came back to Malaysia because my dad had passed away and my mom was in Malaysia. So I got a job in the marine industry. I was working the oil and gas. And that was an amazing point of my life because uh, with my job, I had to travel a lot. So I was based in China, Japan, Korea. We were constructing oil platforms and oil tankers. So I got the chance to live in different countries for several years. And you lived there for um, for longer term? Yeah, um, two years, three years, oh, like wow. three years in Korea. Yeah, yeah. Um, a year in China, like a year, like in total, going back and forth in Japan and, and Singapore a year, and the rest of it in Malaysia as well. Oh, wow. Um, and go to the UK as well for work. So you know, I had a really good life, um, and in the oil gas the, the rates are really good the yeah. life is good you know yeah, you, they put you in yeah they put you in nice five-star hotels you fly nice flights and you know the allowances are good so life um in that sense was was beautiful i mean you get all the privileges i lived i literally lived in five-star hotels for four or five months you know mm-hmm. you come in and the the guy the egg counter says uh hey good morning mr probably your usual yeah. and you got a latte sitting on your table you don't you know, it's a luxurious life and you get, you know, nice big suites when you go to the hotels. But that's a whole different part of my life that I had currently am still enjoying. But in the middle of all that, um, I still got caught up with the whole idea of getting uh, my life uh, in the perfect way that my society and family saw, which is now I've got a good job. Now I need to get married. Mm. So I actually ended up getting introduced, to be honest, um, to this girl in Australia. Uh, she was introduced to me through through my family. So I got to know her. But okay. this wasn't like an arranged marriage of some or... sort. 
Yeah, yeah. she was Australian, um, but her parents um, and families were from Malaysia as well. So okay. they immigrated to Malaysia. So she was Australian. And I got to meet her. And um, I was actually more in love with the idea of getting married because to me, it satisfied what my family and society wanted. But little did I realize that I wasn't really in love with her. Mm. And I was married. I was married for five more than five years. Oh, wow, these are such powerful words, I gotta say. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the thing is, being married, being in the course of that marriage, I sadly but later realized that it wasn't really what I wanted. And it was difficult, the clash in personalities. You know, marriage is something that needs a lot of give and take. And unfortunately, things weren't really working out for me. But I, I stayed. I stayed and I tried to work. I gave it 110%. Mm. And sadly, it's also because of the fear of being judged. Mm. Um, what am I going to answer to my family, yeah, to my, my extended family? What am I going to say to her parents? Although, you know, towards the end, I, I, I put my foot down and said, look, there is no point for you to suffer in silence and go on if you're truly not happy. So, I mean, I did whatever I could. I saw a counselor and stuff like that. And the counselor actually advised that it was better for me to to leave that marriage um, than to stay on and suffer. And it was good to hear what a third person said. So this is where, bringing back to how the Asians live together with an arranged marriage, the way I actually see it, when I'm older now, I, I look in a different perspective. And I, I look at a lot of these arranged marriages in Asia. They're still together. 50 years of marriage, 40 years of marriage, they're still together. Yeah. Truth be told, not everyone is actually truly happy. Mm. A lot of them that I've spoken to say like, oh my God, my husband does this, oh my wife does this, oh shit. I wish I could have done it differently. You know, So there are regrets, but they're still together because to them, it's more a sort of uh, reason to stay together is because they don't want to lose their face in the community. Mm. They cannot accept the fact that their marriage has broken down. People will talk about it. So they, yeah. they bite their tongue, they bite their teeth, and they, they stay in a marriage which they're truly not happy. Yeah. And just, just imagine because, um, this is Asia we're talking about. This is Malaysia we're talking about where culture and religion is so much more powerful working towards these kind of arranged marriages. And then just looking at the rest of the world where there will be so many marriages that are kind of the same and where people aren't leaving the marriages and maybe they aren't happy, but even then it's so hard and people won't um, end a marriage to not lose uh, their face. And then just imagining exactly. in Malaysia adding the whole cultural and religious aspect to it, how powerful that must be yeah. for an individual. And um, so, you know, I was actually, unfortunately, trapped in that, mm. that environment as well. I did personally for myself, aside from the whole idea of losing face, I myself personally did whatever I could because I thought it was my responsibility to try and fix something. Yeah. But, you know, um, you can only do so much from one side. Yeah. The, the effort needs to come from both parties. So sadly, yeah, sadly that that um, wedding arrangement didn't last forever. Um, death do us part didn't uh, quite work out. So <laughs> I decided to end the marriage. And so to be honest... Yeah, to be honest, that was one of the um, hardest decisions I had to make in my yeah. life to to end something big like that. But it was definitely one of the best decisions of my life, if I look at it, because I was not being true to myself. The lesson I would pass on to people is to find the courage to do something that your heart and your soul truly tells you to do. 
not hold back because of the fear of being judged by society and community and the people around you. Because if you live your life trying to make people around you happy, yes, to a certain extent, you should, you know, be selfless. But if it condemns your own happiness and your own future possibility of being happy, then don't do it. It took me a lot. It took me a lot of courage to find it in myself to to end this. And and when I did it, it was one of the most liberating feelings I've had. And to be honest, it only got better from that point on because when I came out of it, I stepped aside and I looked at my whole life and I reflected again. I said, oh my, I literally did what I grew up believing was the right, you know, the right thing to do. And was I truly doing it because I wanted it for myself? Was I truly happy doing it? And the answer is yes and no, actually. A part of me was happy at that it's point of time. I was happy. Yes, it, it was really hard. And only sometimes, sadly, only if you go through a hard moment, do you realize and reflect mm-hmm. deeply. It's deeper reflection on it. Yeah, that's what I also pass on. Yeah. Always whenever I talk to friends or just random people even. We were just random people at first. <laughs> and we engaged yeah, in those yeah, kind absolutely. of very quickly. Absolutely. Um, there got to be hard times. You're not learning otherwise. The hard times really teach no, you. It does. So after after the whole marriage ended, I took time for myself. I, I was still... I, I had to come back to Malaysia then. I had a project in Malaysia. Uh, then I was in Singapore and stuff like that. And sadly, during that time, um, the oil and gas industry started taking a, a bad turn. The projects were being shelved. The oil prices dropped. And I was coming to work and I wasn't feeling very motivated mm. to do work. And I, I took that moment of time. I took a sabbatical break. And the company was kind enough to actually offer me a maximum up to two years of an of a unpaid leave, basically. So I still, I was still um, legally employed with the company. I had my health cover and everything still being supported by the company, just no salary. It's a great situation. So I said, fine. Oh, it was, it was wonderful. I couldn't have asked for anything more. Um, so having said that, when, when that happened, I actually took this time off for myself. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go do the things that I want for myself. Because when I got married, I was moving my life towards the, the wants and likes and needs of another individual. Yeah. So it was no more about me. It was about me and somebody else. Yeah. So I I stopped for myself from doing a lot of things, exploring what I truly wanted for myself. Yeah, and I feel it sometimes, you, you said it earlier, you got to um, follow your own dreams and your own passions and you really got to listen to your heart and what you truly want. But yet I feel it's sometimes so hard for people and also definitely was for me throughout times in my life to really listen to that voice. So that's basically how I, I always phrase it. I'm always, um, when I'm talking to friends and they're going to um, troubles and they're having hard times, I always tell them, really sit down and listen very, very deep within you. There's going to be this really, really silent noise and silent <laughs> voice telling you um, yeah. what you truly should yeah. do. But yet again, mm. we humans, we're so good at denying that. And we're so good at make, coming up with excuses or... And then we're, we're surrounded by people who tell us otherwise. And then I feel like sometimes it's really hard for people to really listen to that voice and to really find that voice kind of. And um, relating to that topic, um, a friend of mine once told me, which uh, was a very interesting thing that I started to do for a while. He told me, when you wake up every morning, ask yourself this one question and keep asking yourself this question until you truly find the answer. Um, the statement goes, I am truly happy when I am fill in the blank. Okay, yeah. So it can be anything. I can be truly happy when I am speaking in a public crowd. 
Yeah. But you, you must you must realize that when you fill that sentence, it must be something that makes you truly happy, even without making any money out of. So don't look at the monetary aspect, because the thing is that a lot of people are driven by their so-called passion or yeah, so-called happiness because it brings I like the term so money. <laughs> yeah. So try and reflect and tell you, ask yourself that question. Mm. It's not an easy question. No, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, you, it, it sounds like a very simple thing, but then think carefully. Let's say if no one paid you to do this mm. thing, does it still make you happy? Yeah. So I asked myself that question, and my answer was diving. Mm-hmm. And I'd been diving longer than I'd been working. I've been working for the past twelve years as an engineer. When did you do your first dive? I don't even know that. Got my license in two thousand and seven. Yeah. It's when I graduated. Yeah, I got mine 2000, right before we met the year when I was on my round the world trip in Australia, actually, as well. Nice. Yes, yes, I remember. Ah, you did your advanced course as well when you into your Yeah, yeah, met. and the nitrox, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I answered that question and it was diving. So, even if no one paid me, I'm truly happy when I was diving. Every time I was diving, I was happy. So, then that started getting me thinking. I was like, okay, let me all explore. So I took a two-year break. And of course, I did a Europe tour. I had so many friends in Europe, as you know. So I spent like three, four months in Europe, just traveling different parts of Europe. And in the other time, um, what I did was I went from different dive centers from different places. Um, and I worked in the dive centers um, as an instructor. And I, I became an instructor a few years before that. You told me really funny stories about your students. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> some of the yeah, guys, yeah, the yeah. Chinese, they can't swim. Over. Oh, God. Yes, absolutely. That. Uh, it's incredible, the, the type of students that you meet. Yeah. Uh, so many different characters. It's, it's You know, see, these things also get me so much pleasure and joy because just meeting different people it's it's a it's a very fun sort of activity and as you know you you've been addicted to diving as well not just because of the diving but the whole experience of meeting people yeah. just being on a on a paradise island so what i i did was i took the time off i started working and managing different dive centers not just teaching yeah, managing. so the, the important thing was i knew the answer within me was diving made me happy mm-hmm. Then I started thinking a little further. How do I monetize my passion? So I became a dive instructor. So that gave me a little sense of money on actually enjoying my passion. I enjoyed teaching people diving. I enjoyed diving with them. And then I thought a little further. Okay, like, let's, let's monetize this a little bit more. And I said, okay, let's manage a dive center. Mm-hmm. So I did because that. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually, yeah, why not? Because uh, it still gives me the pleasure that I yeah. get. Although I had a really good job waiting for me to come back and uh, salaries were good. Stations were yeah. good. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I really enjoyed my job. Different cultures, different people. So that's what I like. I like engaging with mm-hmm. people. That was my my happiness in the job. But it wasn't my true passion. Um, diving was. But because I had a lot of management experience, uh, people management, project management experience, I was starting to think a little further. And I thought, like, okay, what? Why not look into owning and operating a dive center? It was something that I had in my mind, a retirement plan. I yeah. thought at the age of maybe That's 50, I saved my money. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Um, I thought, let's, let's, I, I wanted to do that as a retirement plan. But then I got this opportunity to take the break. So I took a break. I took two years. I started then focusing on managing dive centers. I think it's amazing how you're just um, summing up how you were actually taking your strengths from your job and kind of like worked with them on your passion now. Absolutely. So that's why, that's why, um, coming to the whole idea, like how we talked about earlier, like people have passion and dreams and then you think about how you can monetize it. For example, if I said like, you know, oh, I I like, uh, eating cakes, for example, (laughs) or I, you know, 
I, I like eating cake. So if you if you thought in a broader perspective, yeah, yeah, everybody likes eating things. But if you're truly passionate about cakes and, and enjoying the flavors of cakes and stuff like that, you know what? You could be a food blogger for all you know yeah. and start writing blogs, start, start involving yourself with um, bakeries, stuff like that. So there's always a way. There's always a way to monetize your passion. But the first question you need to ask yourself is what is your true passion that makes you happy even without any monetary benefits from it. And you should never stop yourself because I often hear people saying, yeah, everybody. Yeah, but everybody does that. Yes. That shouldn't stop you exactly. from doing it because you're still an no. individual and you're no. still you and no one is ever going to be you. And so just take exactly. those dreams. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's where the question um, you ask yourself, what truly makes me happy? I'm a, I am at my happiest when I am dash. If you could truly answer that question to yourself, you know that even if 10,000 other people are doing it, you will excel in that. Look at diving, for example. There's tons and tons of dive centers yeah. around everywhere. But I know that makes me truly happy because if I put my heart and soul into it, I will make something out of it. Yeah. So so that's where I ended up heading. So what happened was I ended up in this nice little island um, called Pulawe. So it's in Sumatra. Which I still have to visit. Yes, <laughs> and you will. I will. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you must. Pulawe is actually the northernmost point of Indonesia. If you're looking at where Indonesia starts, so they actually have a kilometer zero monument mm. on that island. So there's this little dive center over there called Lumba Lumba. <laughs> I, I laughed about that name before. I know what it means now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for for the rest of you who don't know, Lumba Lumba actually means. Um, Dolphin. Uh, so there, there, there are dolphins around the area. So a Dutch couple who are in their 60s now started it 25 years ago and they built that place from nothing. So I ended up going there as the manager. So I was managing and teaching that place. And uh, we got along really well. I got along with the people because I also speak Indonesian. I learned how to speak Indonesian because I speak Bahasa, which is a Malaysian language. And they were at a phase of time where they were tired. They wanted to let go of that. And we discussed the opportunity of actually me sort of taking over the place. And I thought to myself, look, this is something that makes me truly happy. I'm passionate about something that I want to do at the age of 45 or 50. But this opportunity has It's come now. knocking on my door 20 years, yeah, 10, 15 years beforehand. So why not take a leap of faith and, and do it? it? It wasn't the easiest decision um, because, you know, at one end, I have a career that gives me a very stable sort of source of income. Yeah. Um, I'm also happy doing it. But then again, it wasn't truly the passion that I had. And this was something that I wanted to do. So this opportunity came about and I said, you know what, I'm going to take it. Yeah. So I decided to jump on this opportunity. And um, officially next week, Friday, is my last day at um, my corporate job. So soon um, 12 years as an engineer sort of comes to an end. Mm -hmm. And I basically am going to go back to the island, to Lumba Lumba Dive Resort in Kulawe as the operations director. And I eventually would like to work towards taking over that resort and hopefully call it my own one day. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, so that's where, that's where I ended. So part of the process of getting there was when I met you in Tioman. That's, that's one of the first bits of my exploratory sort of um, life in the dive industry to... It was right at the start, wasn't it? You had just gotten off your job. Yes, it was right at the start. Absolutely, absolutely. So that was uh, for me to explore to see whether I can actually live on an island mm -hmm. completely. And you know what? I, I feel at my best, I feel like I'm at home mm -hmm. 
And the best part about being on an island is you could be a janitor or you could be a CEO of the company. You're going to wear a T-shirt and a board shorts and slippers or maybe no slippers. So everyone is on an equal par. Mm -hmm. There's no judgment. There's no requirement for you to prove that you're somebody else or above anybody, which is sadly how the world and society is, especially in big cities and stuff like that. In the corporate world, that's how it is. And these are beautiful things that I discovered about being there. I think that's what we also value about um, diving, like the diving society in general because it's just one of these where people are just very equal like it doesn't matter it's just a nice crowd to hang out with everyone's helpful towards you and it's not about competing with others it's just about pushing and supporting each other and just i don't know experiencing something amazing together true and and what i would like about being in this industry is that i'm working on the island or in the resort and the dive service industry your your clients or your customers can be your friends yeah. but i can't have that in my workplace my clients or my customers we can have a sort of friendship but there's always a professional boundary yeah. where you know you've got the contract obligations i can't share too much information i can't be a real friend to my my, yeah. my customer but else in the dive industry it's not like that you know yeah. people you meet eventually become friends and i got to experience firsthand <laughs> you were basically my dive exactly. instructor and i always came over for breakfast <laughs> exactly you see so so these are the beautiful things that I, I, I had, had taken consideration to saying like, okay, this is what I want to do. And I'm, I, I'm truly happy to have made the decision. How does it feel now, like your last days in Kuala Lumpur coming to an end and really taking off? It feels bittersweet, to be honest, yeah. because I, I enjoyed the team that I work with. My bosses are amazing. My company has been really good to me. But, you know, it's a new adventure. So I'm very, very excited to, to embark on this new adventure. Yeah. And um, what, what I would like to, to share, like this whole life lesson on, on, on this aspect of my life is that sometimes you're just caught up. You're caught up with the idea that you are supposed to be doing something that you think is what you want. But you need to step back and reflect. Is it truly what you want? Or is it because you've been driven with this idea and a mindset that this is what you should achieve? You know, people talk about success. And if you have a family, you have a child, you have a car, you have a good high paying job. Is that truly success? Or is reaching happiness in what you're doing real success? And for me, I later over time realized and reflected that You know, you should truly, truly try and aspire to follow what your heart tells you. And that's when you realize true happiness will come to you. And again, pick something that you're really passionate about and slowly work yourself towards monetizing that. First, the most important thing is to step out of the perspective of, of the usual cultural, social norm and see where and how how your passion makes you happy. That's the most That's important thing that I would like to share to people. Yeah. I can say I would love to be an advocate of that because mm -hmm. I've chosen to do that. I've chosen to completely leave some. I've studied, I tried a marriage, it didn't work out. So that's a separate topic, but you know, I got a job. Yeah. I had done whatever my, my society, my family expected me and wanted me to do. But now I've chosen to embark on a path that truly makes me happy for myself. And not just simply nothing. I, I have been able to slowly pursue that passion. And now I am at a standpoint where I'm going to monetize on my passion. Yeah. So for all of you out there, think about that. Think about how things in your life doesn't necessarily have to be the whole same mundane daily nine to five work sort of routine. You can always change that for yourself. It's not the easiest thing. But again, sit back every morning. The first thing you do when you wake up, ask yourself that question. I am truly happy when I am. Dash. Answer that to yourself. That is so beautiful. So yeah, that's pretty much uh, all I have for you, Lisa. Yeah, it's amazing. And, um, 
you you can take it away you from wrapped there. it up perfectly seriously i was just gonna say these are amazing beautiful powerful words towards the end um i am so proud of you um and you're definitely an advocate to me um you're definitely exactly what you just told me in this interview is definitely exactly what inspires me every day and what keeps me pushing and what helps me in life um, to be bigger, to shine brighter and to just um, take on new challenges and all of that. And so I'm very, very grateful and thankful for that. And thank you so much for this interview. It was amazing. And I hope uh, <laughs> you guys out there enjoyed it. Um, I feel Prabhu is a very valuable friend to me and I really hope he was able to pass on some of his life lessons to you um definitely for me he inspires me every day so thank you so much for being here with me thank you lisa <laughs> and uh before i i leave i would like to say like honestly i'm really proud of what you're doing and i can see like you're you're an avid traveler from the time we met you were on your world trip and i've seen how far you've come you started with your blog and now you've got your podcast going and you've got all these travels going on and still planned and and you are actually putting out putting it out there with all your travels you're getting people to be aware of the places you visit and stuff like that so that is amazing you're doing something that you're truly passionate about and i i truly wish you all the best and you know you're always in touch and um, you've always got my support in any any way so yeah i'm i am really proud of what you're doing and what you've achieved and how far you have come so keep that going Lisa. keep you. it going for yourself that means a lot and well, definitely the next time we meet, we're going to go diving. <laughs> That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's wrap this up here. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm so excited that you tuned in again. And um, the next episode will follow in a month. Make sure to hit the subscribe button that you don't miss it. And make sure to check out um, the other channels as well. You can find the podcast on all uh, known big podcast channels. Um, you can also check out my website throughlisaseyes.com if you want to check out the podcast and the show notes throughlisaseyes.com slash podcast. There you can find all the episodes and all the background stories. And you can also, of course, check me out on Spotify and see some more travel pictures there and just engage and dive into all those travel stories and all those places I visited. Thank you for tuning in and I talk to you in a month. I'm excited to welcome you back then. Bye! <laughs>